Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast, where our guest today is Josh Kirkman. Now you may remember Josh from episode one of the podcast when he sat down to interview Nick and I about our origins and why we started OIO. That's right, Josh is the producer of this fine podcast and is also a strategic advisor for communications at OIO. He's also a legend and an old friend of mine. In this podcast, we speak about all things from growing up on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, Australia, what it was like being a professional bodyboarder at a young age, how he then flipped his career to studying and working in Europe, to building a startup of his own, to entering the clean tech acceleration and investment landscape in the Nordics, producing his own podcast, the Laboogie podcast and the Nordic Surfers Mag podcast, to finding himself back in the professional bodyboarding industry and helping us out at OIO. It's a wonderful meandering conversation that was recorded in February 2020 before the world went a little bit crazy with COVID. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, share it around and send us some love. We always love your support. Thanks so much. Hey Josh, um, thanks for being here on this welcome and wet Sunday afternoon at my house in Bilgola. And Very welcoming indeed. And the context of, uh, of you being here, you spent the weekend at uh, my place and at our OIO office in, in Manly is to really sort of step in and, and help us with some mm. of the communications and strategy work around what we're doing in this space, um, and particularly with this podcast. So first of all, thank you. No problem. My pleasure. My pleasure. Been fortunate enough to to be on your podcast before um, Mm. for La Boogie, which we'll Mm. talk about, of course, at some point. Um, But yeah, really wonderful to have your insight and guidance on this one. So we've got a a lot to get through. Um, I just really find you a very interesting and inspiring person. Okay. Uh, And I think there's a lot that we can unpack into what your life journey has involved to to bring you to this point. Um, So maybe let's just sort of go there. Um, I obviously know you as a friend, but as also a fantastic communicator, environmental spokesperson, podcaster, um, but also this incredible uh, ocean athlete too. So where should we start in that big picture of Josh Kirkman? Where do you want to take us first? (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's, it's, I should start by saying thanks for bringing me into the kind of having a chance to dip my toes into the Ocean Impact Organization. I think it's a fantastic initiative and the, the feelings are mutual about, you know, the, the kind of inspiration and whatnot that you get from me, but the feeling's definitely mutual there with you. Um, I don't know where to start with me. I'm a bit of a mixed bag, aren't I? Like, I, I know that there's this piece about me being uh, an ocean athlete of sorts which is something similar to one of your other guests Ben Player who's already been on the podcast and I mean he's way more accomplished than me and I'm very um, proud to say that and to um, call him a friend as well and uh, also someone who was somewhat of a rival in a sense in, in the water and huge respect to him for everything that he's managed to achieve there but I think um, I guess when it comes to the relevance it's probably a little less relevant about my experience competing as a, as a kind of professional bodyboarder, for lack of a better description. But I think some of the work I've done more recently uh, around environmental communications and my work uh, in the clean tech space, probably in Scandinavia, probably has most relevance to what we're talking about. But there you go, I'll let you decide. You're the host, it's not up to me at the end of the day. Yeah, well, that's, I suppose, you know, we can talk about the journey that we've had together as mm. as friends and allies and lots of very inter- interesting interactions throughout our life and they've sort of definitely culminated to this point now mm. where mm. I think we're deeply aligned on our vision sort of for the world and, and how we might be able to do good things together. But let's go right back to what would have been our first ever interaction when you were a, a very enthusiastic teenage bodyboarder, really striving hard in the competitive space, and I was a bodyboarder at that time too on the central coast of New South Wales. So let's maybe go there. Let's talk yeah. about bodyboarding and talk about how 
the ocean brought bodyboarding to you or maybe it was the other way around but tell us about that yeah I, I think for me I, from a very very young age I was very competitive and it didn't matter what I was doing uh, I wanted to win it any whatever it was I wanted to win it and um, and there was a moment, I guess, like most kids in Australia who go to the beach all the time, like it's part of our kind of our weekend rituals, I think, most coastal living or dwelling Australians, is that you end up going down the beach and you end up, you know, playing in the sand and building sandcastles. And there's this point where, like, you start to venture into the water and, and the most uh, kind of common way that a, a young Australian kid enters the water for the first time is with a, a, a polystyrene bodyboard that that was probably picked up from, you know, the local shop or the, the Kmart. It's a this little device that, you know, it, it's nice and safe, so your parents are happy that you can float a bit more out there. It's got no sharp edges. It's um, And it's this ideal craft to, to catch little waves onto the shore. And I, I have, like, a really vivid memory um, of having one of these really basic bodyboards or boogie boards really, like you'd call that one, but um, having this, this board and like just kind of getting on it in the, in the shore breaks at Foster Main Beach, which isn't really a surf beach for most people who haven't or who, who know Foster. It's really not a place where you'd go to catch decent waves. And uh, I remember having this board and, you know, kicking around on it, having a great time. And I must have been four years old, maybe four to five years old. And... And I managed to kind of get this wave and I was like, I'm going to spin around because I knew that that was a thing you did, you know, I'm going to do a 360 on the board. And, and I remember like getting halfway around and just going backwards all the way to the shore. And I was like, wow, that was awesome. You know, that was sick. And I think it's from that moment that it really like became this passion of mine because I was like, you know, there was this thing that was, um, I didn't complete the move, you know, and, and for me, that's the competitive instinct, you know, wells up. It's like, I want to get that. I want to do that. And. So, you know, from there, it was like a, it was this passion that never left really until I was, um, until into my 20s. But um, it was definitely this thing that I could do and I put a lot of time into. And, and luckily, I, my parents were kind of nuts in, to the extent that they allowed myself and my, my older brother to, to go down to the beach from a very young age without parental supervision. Like, we were, we were able to go, I think the rule was that, um, when my brother was 12, he was allowed to be down the beach on his own with his mates, like a 12-year-old kid. And I was allowed to go with him. I was 10, but I could only go with him and the other 12-year-olds. And, like, to me, that's completely nuts. Like, to think, I don't know, if, if I saw a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old down the beach today, and this wasn't to the safe beach. This was to Tunkari Beach, which was kind of renowned as being the... Um, the unpatrolled beach and there's no lifeguards there's no surf life saving club there you're, you're kind of on your own big estuary ocean. flowing out there but nobody really thought about any other risks to do with the estuary until more recently <laughs> but um but yeah so from a very young age i was able to go down the beach you know before and after school and and then you know being with an older brother um and all of his mates from that age of like 10 years old that's when competition starts really in australia you can start to compete from from 10 until 13, that's the grommet division. And, um, you know, I was super competitive. I was competing against the 12 year olds and I was, um, yeah, just never stopped from there. Where does the competitive spirit come from and does it translate across to all parts of your life or is it really mm. mostly in a, in a sporting context? <sighs> People who know me know that I like to win arguments too. Um, it's not a great quality, but it's definitely one you've got to manage. But I do like the thrill of that competition as well, you know, the competition of ideas and the competition of um, debates, you know. it's a, it's a, it, I do get a kick out of that as well. I like to be across a table and try to, you know, not, not necessarily win, but find an understanding, I guess you could say, between different ideas or try to find a way that they can work together. So that's a different type of competition. But... The battle of ideas is definitely something I'm competitive with as well, but predominantly in sport, and and I don't think that'll ever go away. I'm 36 now, and I'm still just as competitive as I've ever been, and it's just a thing I think some of us have that, and some of us don't, and and for those of us who have it, it, it never goes away. It's just the way it is. 
So I'm imagining our first encounter would have been maybe about 1998 to 2000 when yeah. you would have come down. But then probably a decade after that was when I had the next sort of memorable encounter with you, which is when you were studying at University of Newcastle and mm. I was working in Newcastle for a conservation organisation and I saw that Josh Kirkman in this new light, which is this very um, you know intellectual and to your point there about being able to put forward a very strong case and a very strong argument. So tell us a little bit about your academic studies and, and how knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge and holding of knowledge plays out in your life now and has over your mm. career. Yeah, I mean, university was a tricky one for me. If you see my academic transcript, you'll see it's probably the longest ever time period taken to complete an arts degree at Newcastle University. So thanks to Newcastle University for being very patient with my academic life there. Um, it was hard for me with that because you caught me when I was back to university to finish it finally. Um, before then I was you know, pursuing this professional bodybuilding career and sacrificing my studies in order to go and chase this dream of mine. And, and so there were many years where I was kind of dabbling at university and in the beginning I, you know, I chose an education and arts degree because Basically, I wanted to just have a lot of time off because teachers don't work that much, right? But <laughs> shout out to all the good teachers out there. But like, you know, that was a ridiculous way to enter a degree. You know, like I'm doing this degree to get time off, you know, silly mm. thing. Um, I, so I did that. And I kind of dabbled at it. But I found that like uh, the bodyboarding got in the way in a positive sense. And then eventually I, I kind of made the decision for a number of reasons to let go of bodyboarding and just kind of figure out where life was. That took me in many different directions for a few years and I won't dive into that, but it, it did bring me back to Newcastle at a certain point and I was ready to accept that I wasn't going to be a teacher because I actually realised that I wasn't that, uh, didn't have the patience or the kind of attitude for it to do it well and so I, I wasn't doing that and I was coming back with an arts degree to do an arts degree and to focus you know, on like environmental questions because in the time that I'd spent uh, outside of uh, the academic space I was always thinking about what I was doing and, and the impact that was having in the world like you know I remember towards the end of my kind of first phase of my bodyboarding career I, I was there was a big push to go and manufacture in, um, in, in Asia like, like many industries did they went there for the, the lower cost of um, labour and, and probably um, some of the lower environmental regulations you don't have to tick as many boxes to do whatever you want to do. So I remember thinking about that and I was like, how do I feel about the boards that I'm writing and the boards I'm endorsing and trying to sell to others being made maybe by someone who isn't being paid a lot of money to do it, um, being made in a way that maybe isn't going to be so great for the environment and have impacts and, and you know, being made for just the mass production and just pushing these things out uh, ad, you know, into the future forever so that more and more people can buy this thing that, that can't actually be recycled or disposed of very well. And this was a thought I was having before I came back and did these, this environmental studies at university. So you know, by the time I got back to uni and was able to sit there and focus, I was quite clear about what I needed to learn and what I needed to do in order to kind of begin answering some of those questions and doing something about them. So I ended up um, getting into the arts degree and focusing on, I think it was human geography and the environment. And, um, and that was a really positive moment for me. And I think we bumped into each other at the career fair and you were there for the, was it the conservation, Australian conservation volunteers or mm. yeah. So, you know, bumped into you there and then that was a great moment for me as well to reconnect because here I am kind of still like, I've got the arts degree, I know I'm going to do this thing, I know that it needs to be environmentally focused, but, you know, what happens after you finish studying environmental stuff? You know, what kind of jobs do you get and what do you do? And then here's Tim Silverwood, big smile on his face, there to tell me that, oh, well, there's some stuff you can actually do, you know, here's what I'm doing, blah, blah, So it was a really good encounter then and it was... Um, because that's the big question a lot of people ask is that they, they go and they, they do sustainability studies or they, they go and eventually do a master of something that can 
you know, I eventually started a master of um, environmental management and policy in Sweden. And, and the big question for everyone doing that was also like, what kind of jobs can we get at the end of this? Like, what can we actually do? Because it's quite unclear in the market, you know, it's getting clearer now because so many companies need that support. But, you know, for people studying this five to 10 years ago, it was pretty unclear about what you were actually going to do once you graduated. And were you just going to be good for like good conversations with coffees? You know, that's kind of, you know, that, that, that's a pretty daunting thing when you, when you're in the university space. So, I mean, that's a bit of my university experience there, but yeah. What, what, where, I guess the other part was, time? yeah, yeah, that was just really, um, I guess a bit of an entry dis- discussion about, your intellect and your insight into the, into the world. Mm. We have plenty of great conversations about that, but mm. you mentioned there this entry into into Sweden, and I think we can now maybe leap into into Europe. And this mm. is what has been your life, at least in in recent years. Definitely point out some of the moments that happened to get you into into Europe, but then talk a little bit about what you've been doing in in Europe and mm. where you're applying your passions and, and interests and purpose now. Yeah, well, what, what happened, went there, uh, my partner at the time, we went there to go and study and to um, to live there for a while. This and is in? In Sweden, Sweden, in Lund, in a place called Lund, a really nice little place in the south of Sweden. Um, one of the things that struck me as soon as I kind of began living in Sweden and, and being there uh, as a resident was, you know, there are all these systems in place that kind of made environmental sense without having to um, scream about it, you know, that there was no, there were trains everywhere that were fast, you know, like everybody's riding bikes. Uh, the local bus system was run off biogas. Uh, there's wind turbines you can't really drive anywhere without seeing one. Like, and you, you get the sense that there is a kind of like a, a silent sustainability that, you know, you don't have to activate for, you know, there's no debate about this stuff. It's like, yeah, I get the train because it makes sense. I get the, I ride my bike because it's easy to ride a bike here. Why would you own a car? So for me, that was, it's just like a big shock to your system to, to actually live in a space that has all the things you argued about back home. Like, we need this. Ah, oh, but we can't have that for these reasons. Well, I'm here now and it exists right in front of me and it's a pretty wild thing. It's like a paradigm shift for you in your life to, to live within a system that actually is pretty good. You know, like it's, um, it's pretty good. It's just that the climate sucks there. That's the only challenge of Sweden. It gets too cold and dark. But, but yeah, so coming into Sweden, I, I started this, um, this Master of Environmental Management Policy. And that was at Lund University at, the, um, at an institute called the, um, the IIIEE, which stands for the International Institute for Industrial, Industrial and, and Environmental Economics. And there's a whole group of people in there. And their whole thing was about bringing in... Um, students with their bachelor's degrees from across disciplines like there was no really nothing stopping you you might have been studying music production but then you wanted to do this master of environmental management and policy and they're like oh, yeah, cool bit of creativity bring them in so it didn't matter what you studied before but the fact was they were going to gear you up to understand the challenges of the day the principles behind sustainability and kind of send you off into the real world to go on you know break some eggs and um, so that was a really thrilling moment. And one of the big things that happened for me in that degree was to um, do this project, which was all about applying what we'd learnt in the year, the first year, in the real world. We had to kind of ask a question and then go and like execute it in the real world, do something, some initiative. And the thing that came to my mind was, you know, what, and I don't know if this is from some cultural DNA in me, but it was like, you know, what is it like to start an environmental business? Like, what is it like to, to have an idea that's an environmentally focused one and to try and develop it? And, and that was within the context. I've kind of missed one step there. But in the south of Sweden at the time, and in Sweden more generally, and the Nordics actually more broadly, the, there's a huge innovation ecosystem that's kind of popped up to support ideas, you know, to support startups, to to grow them, to, ha- to facilitate everything they need to, to kind of 
be all they can be. And in the south of Sweden alone, I think at the time, there were about 187 different support services for startups. And I mean, that's wild to like, that's the southern part of Sweden, not, not Stockholm, which is the capital. And so I remember recognizing this, there were all these like initiatives and scholarships and business coaches here and, you know, you know, just, it's, it's a different world. And, um, and I was like, all right, well, what's it going to be like to do some kind of idea through there? So I'd been toying around with this idea about solar, um, kind of about the reality of, um, the fact that people living in apartments couldn't install their own solar panels. And, you know, at the time Australia was just kicking ass with solar installations, you know, it was just taking off the, the government subsidies were great. The, the industry was ready to deliver and there were homes just adopting it at such a rapid rate. And, and I was looking at that going like, why can't that, like, how do, how does that happen here? Or how, how does it, that happen for people in an apartment block? And, you know, the answer was, well, it doesn't, you know, they live in apartments, they don't have a choice, they're locked into whatever the kind of grid provides. So we came up with this idea called Love Solar, and I, I kind of um, developed it in partnership with a very dear friend of mine, Stephen Curtis, who was a student at the Institute at the time, he's now doing a PhD in circular economy, the sharing economy in um, at the Institute now. And um, so we took this idea of Love Solar, which was to connect people living in apartments with rooftops in the suburbs and basically they would the apartment dweller would kind of fund the rooftop installation and the the home would share the benefit the financial benefit back with the you know the person in the apartment and it's an idea that um since has actually been executed very well um in a number of different kind of iterations and um but it was cool to kind of have it and so we took this idea had a name, Love Solar, and we went out and we went through this ecosystem to see, like, how's this all going to work? Like, are they going to support us? Like, is, it, is a green business going to get the kind of support it needs, um, you know, through this ecosystem? And, yeah, it was a really interesting journey. And, it, we, I mean, we started to win awards for the idea. Like, the, the system started to give us some results, you know. Like, we won some, you know, environmental startup award, you know, won a bunch of cash and then got this scholarship and had a bit more cash and and then we we kind of the next step was to kind of you know take the idea and what we built up around it you know we even got a little office space in a little hub you know it was it was cool and um we had all these business coaches and stuff like that and you know like it, it we went through the system for a while but there there did there were barriers that popped up and and these kind of business models around sharing economy were still pretty young and and what was shocking to me in that time was that there were a lot of like business coaches in this system and hopefully they've learned a bit more since then but they were kind of people that had been successful in the old way of business and they were advising kind of like a new paradigm and it didn't make much sense and the best test i could use at the time was kind of like oh yeah it's like it's kind of like airbnb for solar panels and people are like what's airbnb and i'm thinking they got more rooms in the hilton hotel chain now mate you know like you don't know what Airbnb is? And then I'd explain it to them. I go, oh, I've never used that. I was like, well, it doesn't matter if you, you'd never use it. It's happening. <laughs> and so it was really interesting to see that like the sharing ideas are pretty hard for some of these business coaches. And it was, it was like the system, yeah, it, it didn't quite understand what we were trying to do. Maybe we were touch early, but it just seemed like there was a lot of people out there giving advice and what we really needed was a different thing. You know, we, ne we needed like, we didn't want people, we didn't need people to criticize the idea. We needed people to kind of provide a platform for us to, to prove it. And yeah, like the, the barriers we came up against were, were very interesting at the time. And it left me a little bit jaded with the system in place. Cause they were all government funded. They were just like raking it in and, and there was some good support. There was some good people there. So I'm not definitely not saying it didn't work and some companies did quite well through that system, but it was definitely, I found it, it was definitely a struggle to try and get a pretty progressive idea through a, an innovation system like that because at the time, you know, these things like, you know, Uber and Airbnb and all that, they were still kind of like, they were kicking ass, but they weren't like household names, it seems. So it was hard to go and pitch something that was in the same vein uh, without getting a lot of resistance. So, so that's where it all went there. And then through that process, I actually 
met a very, very good human being named Alexander Lidgren and um, he was with the Swedish Energy Agency at the time and, you know, he, he was a local guy from Lund and he was part of the institute. He was um, a former student there as well in the same program and he basically sat down and listened to myself and Steve and, and just had coffees and beers and just was interested in what we were doing and showed a genuine um, care for the fact that we wanted to try and do something. So he ended up jumping into a, a company called Cleantech Invest and then you know, a year or so later the opportunity came up to go and work with him there in a communications capacity and, um, and that's kind of what took me from the kind of struggling with a startup step to, to actually stepping into the real world of a, of a stock listed um, you know, NASDAQ listed company um, in Stockholm and Helsinki and, and working in that kind of very real investment space um, and in clean tech acceleration. And, and that, was, um, that was kind of the, the step for me into the real world um, and a very daunting one. So let's go there and, and talk about this real world because um, as I openly declare, I'm I'm on a on a journey to discovering as much as I can about this world, and I I thank you so much for all the insights and advice you've been able to give me to date. But so here we are in 2020. You've you've had uh, experience and exposure to this world. How do you articulate um, this this world that's out there and this world of, that is willing to do business as unusual and adjust mm. the status quo with a clear goal like um, clean tech invest to, to, to bring renewable energy and renewable projects to the masses. Like, mm. Tell us a bit about the space. Well, it, it's a tricky one because I think like um, clean tech invest itself went through a number of transitions during the time I was with them. And one of them was a name change to drop the clean tech part because there was, there was some uh, negative uh, connection to clean tech in terms of an investment class from kind of, uh, it was a few years earlier before me, but there was a, a lot of big losses that took place um, with that attached to the type of investment it was. So there was this shift towards a new name, which was Loudspring. And, but yeah, like it was, it was a really exciting time um, to get involved. And like, I'm not the finance guy. I'm not the, I'm not the deal maker, you know, doing that. I was just the guy that effectively just knew how to use social media okay and had creative ideas about how to communicate about these technologies and these companies and what they were trying to do. Um, so that was my in. Um, and, it was a, and it was a big leap though to then go from kind of doing this social media stuff to then being there for shareholder communications. You know, like, you know, dealing with shareholders is pretty full on. Like you, they, they do, and they, they're, they're on a spectrum. At least my experience tells me that like there's there's the shareholders who just care about the profit, the value increase of the share, and they just they don't care about the other stuff. They don't care about whether it's doing anything about climate change. Like that's nice to have, but the the reality is that this is their money and they're investing it and they want to return. They want to get value growth and they want to sell that at the right time and keep on the journey. Um, there's others who are in the middle that seem to like balance it out between, you know, they 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 know that it's important that they invest ethically or consciously um, but they also want to make some return back and they're, they're more tolerant of um, you know slow appreciation of that value and then there's the there's there's there are a number who are actually on this other end completely which kind of branches into this impact investment space where they're they're very like in their heart and soul they they this is what they have to do they're on a mission you know like they're not going to invest into things that aren't going to have a positive impact in the world so when you come at that from a perspective of a communications director and a creative, you know, person trying to communicate what's going on and why it's important, why it matters, you know, it's really complex to get those different um, those different listeners satisfied with what's happening and and you know, like a lot of ideas that I proposed and had the good fortune to execute, you know, they they satisfied most at a time, but you know, often there's you know, it's hard to keep everybody happy, so. You know, some of, the, some of the simple things I worked on in that space, which was really exciting, was to, to kind of have like some, some connection between the investors, the shareholders, because these are just everyday people. There was some, some kind of like high net worth individuals that were kind of also shareholders in, in Loudspring, but there were also like just everyday investors, retail investors, and they were just like you and I. They just had a little 
account where they would trade shares and and um, you know we did a few cool events um, kind of they were called the sexy truth uh, to to work against the inconvenient truth and so we brought people um, into like a nice little kind of setting and did like a live talk show with our portfolio companies bit of live music a few beers and wine and just a nice mingle but a good chance for them to ask questions directly of our portfolio companies um, so that was really cool and exciting and and it was really great for the portfolio companies as well um, to have to stand up in front of the people who you know are investing into them through through loudspring and and kind of make sure that they put their best foot forward and and communicate what they're up to and, and know how to say like why does it matter that we're supported by loudspring or why does it matter that you invest in us and and believe in us to bring you the value in your portfolio so that was really cool for them it was like not all of them were great at it but like some were really good some weren't so good but it was a, a good thing for them to get used to i think um because part of part of the deal when you're a startup or a growth company is that you sure you've got your technology you know down pat and that's what all of these people who started these companies they're geniuses you know like they're engineers or they're you know they're data analysts you know they've got you know computer science backgrounds and whatnot they've come up with these apps or these like technical solutions and you know brilliant individuals but not always great communicators not always able to um, articulate what it is they're doing and why it matters and so now it was really cool to be able to um, put them on the spot a little bit and, and facilitate them in getting their message out and one of the things I ended up doing as well through the through Loudspring was to consult directly with a few of these companies and and kind of work with them on their own communications within the portfolio. So that 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 was also thrilling. It got it gave me the opportunity to learn so much about some crazy stuff like um, the impact of inefficient compressed air in the world. You know, like something we all take for granted is that everything we touch and feel was made using compressed air and that these compressed air systems are incredibly inefficient because of the rapid scale-up of production in China, that they're just bleeding money. Like, money is just being wasted every day, and that means CO2 emissions are being released unnecessarily through this inefficiency. And, you know, one company I worked with and have a good relationship still is one called Enesize, which was addressing this issue and creating, like, a smart software um, to analyze these systems and identify where the weak point was and, you know, identifying what needs to be done to make this more efficient and, yeah, cool stuff like that. Another really cool one was called Eagle Filters, which was just improving the air quality that was going into gas turbines so that they were more efficient and not, not, wasting, um, not wasting the gas they're burning, you know, for, for electricity production and whatnot. So very different things, um, you know, one of the other ones I worked with was a, um, it was a, uh, like a big data analytics platform for real estate so that you could connect the sensors in a building and, you know, find, uh, efficiencies, but also improve productivity and health within buildings, which kind of has a, a net positive impact when it comes to the environment. And they were called Nuka, um, you know, very diverse companies. And, and for me, to get the opportunity to get in there and learn so much about things that are just flying under the radar for most people um, was a real privilege and, um, and I definitely enjoyed the challenge that each of those companies brought with them and you know the how do we how do I help them get their message out it was really a lot of fun that's definitely where our thoughts align when it comes to the importance and the power of communications mm. to create the vision of what it is that we're trying to achieve. So maybe this is a question where I'm actually sort of seeking your advice and guidance, like mm. knowing that OIO has this goal to really build a public facing brand and really channel out as much relevant communications as possible. But mm. then back to those examples of the tech that you were working on um, previously, the world doesn't necessarily need to know that a filter exists in order to optimize yeah. efficiency in you know, energy generation from gas. Maybe we could argue that you want to know about compressed air and that, that could then cause you to, to demand a, a better alternative. But 
yeah, with OIO, what are some of the the risks and opportunities there around trying to build such a big brand and communicating the story of the vulnerability of our planet, of our ocean, mm. to lead to our ultimate success, which is attracting, growing, and um, scaling these these new business ideas, innovations. I think the really cool thing about what you're embarking on is that it's a very um, tangible thing that you're dealing with. It's it's the ocean, and it touches all of us. Um, whether we whether we know it or not, but for most Australians, we know it intimately, um, and we value it, and we love it. It's part of our culture and part of our um, it's a, it's part of our DNA here as Australians. Um, I think also with the OIO, I assume, and I may be wrong with this, but I assume that a lot of the companies that will ultimately come through um, the accelerator will probably be B two B companies. They they'll probably be doing some big infrastructure shifts or you know things like um you know one of the interviews you've already done was this ocean protect you know like they're doing really good um they've got really great ideas and technologies that they're developing about stormwater challenges you know like this is big infrastructure that's a transaction that's going to take place between you know a municipality and them it's not going to be a consumer focused thing necessarily but in terms of building the brand Despite this B2B um, assumption that I have, uh, I do believe, like, it's important to remember at the end of the day that businesses are populated by people and people are the C in the B2C. These people have agency and they have lobbying power within their organisations if they get inspired by something. So the work of communicating OIO... um, today and into the future to me if it needs to go to the people it needs to um, fire them up about the challenges and it needs to inform them about where do they fit within these challenges and how can they leverage their own influence and their own networks to facilitate the change that OAO is trying to achieve through these companies that will come through the acceleration program so it's it's a very big opportunity, and I think that it's a um, it's a very exciting one. I'm incredibly optimistic that it's going to be a success because of the the nature of the 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 mission and the um, to be fair to yourself and and also to Nick the passion that you two have as co-founders um, and you know more to the point your efforts already displayed with what you've achieved with Take Three for the Sea. I think. That it's um, if I was a gambling man, um, I'd be putting my money on this being a success due to the kind of the factors those factors combined, and um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting journey you're on. But getting that message out to the people, and I think well, Seabin is a very classic example of the agency of individuals to get things done. Like that, you know, the Seabin is kind of technically a B two B, you know, transaction at the end of the day but they've managed to integrate the consumer into the, the process of getting the B2B transaction done. And I think that's a really powerful model that um, a lot of B2B uh, kind of players can look at and go, oh, wow, if we can inspire people and if we can build a community around what we're trying to, or the problem we're trying to solve, we can actually sell this. We can actually get this deployed at scale. And I think that's a really... Um, a really powerful example of what can be achieved through OIO and, and building the brand of it and then the brand of those companies that come through it. And really at the core of this shifting perspective and philosophy that I, I can't shake at the moment, which is that when you've won the hearts and minds, which I've witnessed over a 10-year duration, the hearts and minds of many, many, many millions of people to say, I just don't want plastic in mm. the ocean doing all those things that I now know are happening to then say, well, in order to have that vision, that goal, you actually need to acknowledge that there's all this complexity that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And so back to the compressed air point, everyone who's listening in right now is just thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe everything in this room I'm looking at has utilized compressed air to make transport, you know, all these things. Um, yeah. And that has obviously played a role in, in polluting our, our planet with carbon. So understanding that, and that's why I think this education and inspire piece of the puzzle that we're really focusing on with OIO initially 
is all with a means to attract the best ideas, provide the tools that those ideas can either succeed rapidly or fail rapidly mm. in order to reach that end goal of driving money to doing good, not mm. doing bad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I think the other thing about it is that there is an interest level that's increasing amongst investors to put their money into things that matter and have a positive impact. Like it's, it, it's becoming increasingly clear that, um, that some of the large players that hold money and deploy it are, they can't continue business as usual. They can't continue investment as usual because, um, the, the data that's being produced by a lot of different players to show the impact of those investments is saying, you've got to stop doing that. The divestment movement is a classic example of like taking money out of something to kind of starve it of the capital and support. And, and that's one thing you can do. You can divest, which is a really positive step that any investor or fund can take is to say, we're not going to support any coal projects. Um, we're not going to support any oil and gas projects. Like that's one thing to do. But the tricky bit for these um, these money holders in society or in the in the economy is like where do they put that money? Because they have to make that money work. They can't just like hold it, stick it under the mattress. You know, they've got to put it to work somewhere. And that's where the challenge is for for an organisation like OIO and other impact investments is how do we become attractive enough so that that money can be put to us and and put to work through us. Um, that's really the challenge, but I feel like it's an opportunity that um, investors want to, they want that opportunity, but it's just about how do you get that transaction to take place and what is it that they need to know or to understand about the technologies to feel comfortable putting that money to work and, and feeling like it's a good idea or something they're willing to, you know, the, what's the risk profile of some of these companies and things like that. So. That's the challenge, and I think communications play a fundamental role in that. Um, communicating impact um, from the very beginning, which is a discussion I've had with yourself and Nick about, you know, some of the work I've been a part of at Loudspring was to um, kind of project manage the impact reporting um, for them, and that was all about avoided emissions. You know, what did our companies do to avoid CO2 emissions, and what did our companies do to save water or avoid using water? Um, they're pretty critical elements to take into account when you want to show the market and show the investors who've got the capital and they want to put it to work and they want it to do good. How, how, do, how do you show them that what you're proposing or what you represent is worth putting their money into? And that's the real challenge at the end of the day. And one that is, um, it's not a mountain to climb. It's just, it's just a process to undertake. Mm. Yeah, like anything, the sooner you embed it, um, so much better than trying to retrofit later on. Yeah. Is it good actually to sort of use that big part of your last conversation there as a bit of a, a segue in the sense that, you know, traditional investment and that structure that's in place, it works how it currently works and we're all over here waving flags saying, hey, it'd be great if you could change over to this one, which is going to be relatively untested and high risk and just not mm. enough opportunity out there. Is that a good segue then to talk about your work that you've been doing on the the Equinor campaign and fight for the yeah, bite sure. in the sense that we obviously all, it's very easy for our hearts and our minds to say that is a bad idea, that's bad, but you've also got a, a huge corporation out there and a huge amount of vested interest saying, well, the world's still chewing up oil and gas and yeah. utilising it and we're all utilising it and this is just another project we need to sustain that mm. appetite. So. How does, I suppose, your your involvement in that campaign play out with your pragmatism that you mm. you hold so well, but then also that, come on, there's, there's, a, there's another way around this particular one. Yeah, that, that campaign was really cool, and I should, you know, a huge thanks to the Patagonia crew for giving me the opportunity to be a part of it um, in the way that I was able to be uh, when we did a bit of a bit of a journey through Scandinavia uh, last year with... Um, with Heath Josky who came over and there were a number of other representatives from Australia who came over as part of a delegation. Um, it was it was such a cool thing to to go to what are very boring events, AGMs. They're they're Corporate very AGMs. boring <laughs> events. Like they're <laughs> definitely not exciting but but this Equinor one was a blast, you know, like we 
We had, uh, you know, Bunna Laurie there. He did a, a beautiful speech and um, played some beautiful music as well to kind of emphasise the Indigenous aspect of the of the problem in, in the bite and, and what it meant um, and really connecting that... Um, you know, that, that message about, like, he's a whale man, you know, like, it, it was just so good to remind um, all these suits that, like, this is about so much more than just what you're trying to profit from, you know, this is about so much more than the, you know, the, the impacts of drilling or the, you know, the absurdity of it um, in such a volatile oceanic environment. It was just this very real and deep connection to the land and the sea, and Bunnalori represented that so well. So it was a, it was great to experience that myself because I'd never had any um, connection uh, in a personal sense to like an indigenous fan coming to a place like this and actually like putting forward that aspect. It's always been a bit different in my experience. Like, not that I've ever been an activist, but like the to see it in real life was like super powerful. Cruising along through there, doing these paddle outs in Oslo, doing um, connecting with small kind of surfing communities in Stavanger and then up in Lofoten, you got the sense that um, you know that that whole that whole trip was it was a communications exercise and a and a and a flexing of the of the oceanic or the surf community's muscle in a in a in an environment that wasn't typical. You know, they'd never. Equinor had never seen a guy like Heath Josky come on stage and give a speech like that. Like, it was it was brilliant, you know. And to, and it was so real and raw. And you know, full credit to him for for leading the way on that and just being the guy to put himself out there and and go on a very big learning journey as well. Like, kind of like we what you talk about and what I'm always on as well is that like it's we're always learning here. We don't know everything about the problems. We don't, but we know it's right or wrong. Like we we know what's right or wrong. And, and Heath really stepped up and, and did such a great job there. And so, yeah, so that, that kind of work, I mean, like it's an ongoing project. I mean, um, the, the challenges still remain. And, you know, I know that, like, for example, Equinor's doing a lot of um, proposed drilling up in Nova Scotia as well. And there's a surfing community up there that are starting to worry about it. And I've had some contact with them about it. And, you know, we do what we can do with the resources that we have. And in that case, um, that was work that I was doing through Nordic Surfers magazine and trying to drum up support from the Nordic community, the Nordic surfing community to kind of step up against Equinor. Um, so no, that's pretty exciting work. But these AGMs, you know, they, they, they can become a pretty dynamic environment if you've got the right players in the room. Another great one was Bruno Bryan, um, Aussie woman who... Um, is from the, I'll probably butcher this, but the Australian Centre for Corporate Social Responsibility. Apologies, Bryn, if I got that wrong. But, um, you know, really understanding the the mechanics of an AGM and what, what do you need to do to kind of influence that space. And, yeah, so that was a fascinating journey and, and one that took me for the first time to the kind of front lines of the, the kind of shareholder activism side. Like, when you, I was fortunate to work for a company for so long, like Loudspring, that was, we, we were the good guys. Like, we didn't have to, like, we had to do a good job, but, like, we didn't have to, um, like, defend our credentials about what we were investing in because we were investing in companies that had a positive impact. And it was, like, a, an extremely fortunate space to kind of kick off my journey in that, in that world. So... So yeah, connecting it to the uh, Equinor experience and and the and seeing people understanding the problem and and speaking up like there were Norwegians who you know it's a tough thing to discuss in Norway for a Norwegian like it's their their whole country has been developed off the back of the oil boom and and their how smart they've been with their sovereign wealth fund and things like that. Like they've, they've powered a full economy off the back of their expertise and their financial sense um, when it comes to oil and they're faced with a pretty big problem. Yeah, I guess that's a problem as well for Australia at the moment, right? Mm. A long history of extracting minerals and particularly coal from yeah. our uh, environment to, to sell off. So this idea of transitioning out of the, the business as usual, damaging, polluting ways and into the future is, is relevant for, for many countries around the world. Yeah, totally. And like, I think it's important to say as well, like we don't, nobody expects whole industries to fall apart overnight. And 
you know, I think a lot of people in the environmental movement in Australia and abroad, like they understand that like there are people who've worked in the coal sector all their lives. They're not villains. They're not the enemy. Um, what 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 economies and what policymakers need to figure out is how do we do a transition for the workers in these fields? Because if we are going to transition away from using those fossil fuels, there's going to be a lot of people without jobs. So figuring that out is actually like a, a complex thing, but it's something we should all be in, involved with and sympathetic about as we try to, you know, create environmental change. So it's important to remember that there's humans involved as well at the, at the same time. Yeah, it almost takes us right back to the conversation at the beginning about going and living in Scandinavia and seeing how things just seem to be accepted, but they've obviously got a long, long history that's allowed it to create that stability of acceptance yeah. that this is the way that we do things. Where Australia, we, we sort of feel sometimes that we're yet to really find our feet there, but mm. all the more reason is why, um, you know, projects like OIO exist now in order to just say, look, we acknowledge that we do need a bit of a business as unusual approach um, because the way that we're doing things now is not going to be the way that we're doing things in a decade's time and yeah. beyond. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, and also, I mean, the positive thing about um, the current climate we're in, in Australia, you know, there's floods and bloody high seas now, but like for the last three months has been, you know, the biggest bushfires ever. And what's been really cool to see is the galvanizing effect that's had for a lot of Aussies and, and seeing them really rally in support of those affected communities, but also seeing that bigger picture about, okay, where does this fit within the climate change discussion and what are we really doing about it and what can we do better? So I feel like there's a, um, you know, out of the ashes, there is an opportunity for Australia to um, redefine its relationship with some of these complex environmental challenges. And, and I think the people, the voters are actually um, ready to engage on, on those um, complex issues. Great. So on that um, on that front, um, talk a little bit about the future for you and the future for your areas of, of passion. I know you're committed to your, your bodyboarding this year. Yeah. You're going to be going hard on that. But tell us a little bit about where you're at and where you're heading. Well, I think that like I'm in a transition at the moment myself. Like I'm 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 kind of taking the time to to kind of figure out what's the best use of me within the context of the environmental work that I want to do and, and the impact that I want to make. But at the same time, you know, I have this really personal um, competitive passion, which I know needs feeding. And uh, part of that involves continuing my kind of uh, competitive career. I made a bit of a comeback, as you know, maybe three years ago into bodyboarding at the, the top level. And it's it's been okay. It's proven to be not a terrible decision so um i'm gonna try and give it a good nudge this year uh on the competition circuit i go to hawaii in a couple of weeks um that'll be in february late february so yeah go and compete enjoy that and you know part of that for me is um it's a nice it's been a nice north star to focus on while kind of figuring out other questions in my life and and um so no it's a it's a big pleasure of mine to do it and at the end of the day it's you know, connects in with some of the podcast work I do as well with the, the La Boogie podcast. And I, got, I have another podcast for Nordic Surfers magazine, which always needs characters to interview and, and put them on there. So it gives me the opportunity to keep on connecting with people. And that's all cool because like for me, um, everything I do kind of feeds into the, the, the mission and the impact I want to make. So like building my... Um, credibility in the bodyboarding space and building my credibility within the podcast space in the surfing world more broadly it does provide me with a, a more uh kind of concrete platform to be able to to do the the environmental work that i want to do as well so and that that's what took me um to the equinor agm uh and it's taken me to many other cool places to talk about environmental challenges and whatnot so yeah what I guess I'm trying to say is that a bit of my self-indulgence and my um, competitive work that I want to do this year, it'll, um, it'll definitely be feeding into the bigger kind of impact and mission that I, that I want to um, make in the world. And, you know, like, of course, I'm here helping out for the weekend and I, you know, I've always been a big fan of yours and, and I'm, you know, really impressed with, um, with Nick, the co-founder, about his kind of journey to OIO and I, I think it's super cool to hear his story about 
you know, the accountant that wanted to do good and <laughs> try and get to this point and his journey is really, really cool. So, you know, like I'm, I'm hoping to try and do um, however I can help you guys along the way and however I can help anyone, to be honest, anyone who wants to um, kind of either transition their business to do better or they have an idea that they want to try and make an impact, a positive impact in the world, you know, I'm, I'm all ears, you know, I don't, I don't mind. I'm, I like being able to have a conversation, have a chat, share whatever ideas I might have about what might be helpful. And, you know, that's what I'm kind of here for as well. It's pretty nice. It is nice. And um, hopefully everyone who's been listening in today or this evening, whenever it is, you're listening to this, you've, you've got a glimpse at just um, how interesting a person you are, Josh. And I think that our friendship and our relationship both in a personal and in this work context is is only going one way and that way is up so i want to thank you so much for um for joining in the conversation today do you have some some closing words or some um links that you want to share with people where they can follow up on from today's chat i mean of course and thank you for those kind words like of course people can like if you're into bodyboarding you can follow the boogie podcast that's kind of cool and if you're you know if that's your thing it's pretty niche um i mean at the end of the day i think like i guess the last message i want to let people know about me and i guess it's about them too is that we've all got skills and abilities and we've all got a choice about what we do with those skills and abilities in our working lives and in our daily lives and I think that for too long people have thought that they've had to separate their their passions and their um kind of their purpose from their work and you know you talk about business unusual and it's kind of like life unusual as well like we can all find ways to make an impact and a contribution to the to the big challenges we face. Some of us are really good at activism. Some of us are like where we can be on the front lines of a rally. Some of us can chain ourselves to a tree. Some of us can walk into boardrooms and tear shreds off, you know, corporate suits. Some of us can be incredible athletes, but also understand that they can use that influence and that credibility there to go and influence that group um, towards a change. So I just think for anyone who might be listening to this, it's really important to realize that all of the tools are inside of them and it's up to them to figure out what are those skills and abilities? Like what, what am I good at? What, what's my thing? And then take that time. And, and Nick has been very good at this at Ocean Impact Org. He took the time to go and find the thing he wanted to put his skills and abilities into an accountant, you know, like there you go. He could have been doing tax returns for the rest of his life or he could have been doing so many other things, but he's taken the skills he's got, the education he's got, and he's found, he's, he's, he's recognized his passion and he's found his purpose and he now has a mission and all of that work. And all of those abilities and, and all of that education over so many years is now being used towards something incredibly positive. And I think that everybody can 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 have that discussion with themselves. And and I'm and I'm very confident that anybody listening to this will be able to find that north star and to be able to integrate purpose into their working lives and into their you know their life more general. Love it. Thanks, mate. No worries. Just raise your